Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. My Uncle David was an eccentric man. He was a caring and pleasant person for most of his life. However, he was also a sensitive soul and not much of a people person. David never got married or had children. He lived alone his whole life and worked a dull job in the civil service. Yes, David was definitely an introvert and may have been on the spectrum, but he kept to himself and indulged in his unusual hobbies some of which became obsessions. I guess that's why he bought the model village. For those of you unfamiliar with the concept, a model or miniature village is an attraction closely associated with the English countryside, although there are few left in existence in the 21st century. Some date back to the 19th century, but their popularity peaked from the 1930s to 1950s. Essentially, they are outdoor-scale models turned into very detailed exhibits replicating towns or villages, containing everything from miniature churches, houses, railways, canals, and parks, and figurines representing small people, men, women, and children, and even pets. The level of detail is impressive, and there's a quaint and almost magical feel to such attractions. But, of course, like so much else, Model villages have lost much of their appeal in the modern digital age, unable to compete with more contemporary leisure pursuits and venues. The few which remain retain their quintessential charm and appeal, but their heyday is long gone. Uncle David couldn't have foreseen this trend when he purchased his own model village in the early 1990s, although I doubt I would have stopped him, as he never regarded the attraction as a financial enterprise. I won't tell you the location of Uncle David's village, it doesn't exist anymore, but I can't guarantee its former site is safe or that the evil which once dwelt there is now gone. I will describe it to you, however. The village was called Mossville, an odd name with slightly sinister overtones. This was the title the attraction came with when David bought it, and he was adamant that the name wouldn't change. He was a stickler for tradition after all. 
Mossville was built to a scale of 1 to 72, and contained most of the features one would expect to find in a traditional English village circa the late 19th or early 20th centuries. The main street consisted of a steepled church, angelic of course, a neat town hall with a copper-domed roof, and a schoolhouse with big glass windows. The street also contained several tidy shopfronts, a butcher's, a grocery, a village pub, a bank and post office, the type of small businesses which are slowly disappearing in the real world. Off the main street were the homes and houses, a mix of quaint cottages and Georgian townhouses. The detail was astonishing, right down to the tiny flower beds in the gardens surrounded by white picket fences. The manor house was located on the edge of the village, close to the purposefully built stream which cut through the mock countryside. The house was four stories tall, with stained glass windows and turrets. The grounds around it were meticulously designed and maintained, with a neat tree-lined avenue leading out to its front gates. Further along the river stood a functioning windmill, more in the Dutch rather than English design, but still in keeping with the ambience of the attraction. The final feature of note was the railway station to the south of the village. A long platform and a red brick station house with an old steam locomotive that permanently sat on the rails, its adjoined carriages divided into first, second, and third class. And then there were the figurines, the tiny villagers who populated Mossville. Each was unique and had their own names based on their roles and jobs, lady of the manor, the butcher, the vicar, the grocer's wife, the train conductor, all appeared to be happy people going about their daily business. Everything was well-ordered and peaceful in Mossville, as it represented an oasis of tranquility in an otherwise chaotic world. Or at least, that's what we used to believe. As you can probably tell, I spent a lot of time in Mossville. My parents brought me and my sister down there regularly when we were young and before mom and dad got divorced. I recall how magical a place it was to visit as a child. My uncle was always happy to see us and share his village with us telling my sister and I the stories behind every building, feature, and figurine. He was strict, however, warning us never to mess around with his beloved village. I remember one time when we accidentally damaged the church roof whilst playing, and David was furious with us. His reaction was scary, and I guess we didn't understand why he was so obsessed with his little village. Sadly, David was a man with a lot of problems. But life moved on. My sister and I grew up, and we stopped visiting Mossville and my uncle. I feel bad about it now, but I was an angsty, hormonal teenager, and the last place I wanted to hang out was a boring old model village. Sadly, Uncle David's mental state only deteriorated in the years that followed. He took early retirement from his job and became even more obsessed with building and maintaining Mossville. For a while, we ran it as a family attraction charging a small entrance fee for families to visit on weekends and bank holidays. But eventually, he grew tired of these visitors and their disruptive ways, choosing to close Mossville to the public and make it his own private haven. In the years which followed, David became a total recluse, cutting ties with most of his family and few friends he had. My mother would still visit occasionally, mainly to check that her brother was still alive, but she usually received a frosty reception. I don't know what happened to David which made him cut himself off from the outside world and become completely engrossed in this almost childlike hobby. 
Perhaps he suffered a personal tragedy or heartbreak, which we didn't know about, or maybe he just couldn't cope with the stresses and pressures of the world. In any case, I'm afraid his life was destined to end tragically. So, let me tell you about the summer of 2001. My mother hadn't seen her brother in about two weeks. She phoned regularly enough, but my uncle rarely answered or called back. She went down to his cottage one day and couldn't get an answer when she rang the bell, or even when she knocked on the door repeatedly and loudly. Concerned, she used her spare key to enter David's home, but discovered he wasn't there. Alarm bells started ringing at this point, as David rarely ever went out. But mom didn't panic just yet. She did start to really worry when she drove to the Mossville site and found David's workshop empty and no sign of him in the village. Not only that, but the site was a mess, with miniature buildings smashed in and figurines broken and scattered all over the concrete and grass. Mom knew how much Mossville meant to her brother, and she could only imagine the impact this act of wanton destruction would have on his mental state. At this point, she did panic and phoned the police, but they weren't able to file a missing persons report until 72 hours later. This deadline came and went, and the report was processed, but no information was forthcoming. Mom phoned the police daily until they stopped returning her calls, and then she started her own search, getting stories published in the local press, posting missing signs all over the countryside, and starting a website requesting information, as this was before social media was a major thing. She worked so hard for so long, but never got any solid leads. It was heartbreaking for us to see as the fruitless search consumed my mother. She always felt responsible for her brother's disappearance, feeling that she should have looked after him better. We told her constantly that she wasn't to blame, that he was a grown man who'd made his own decisions, but it was no good. Our mother kept the faith for years, still believing that David would turn up one day. I didn't share her belief, however. My uncle was always disturbed, and I feared he had gone to some quiet spot to end his life. Perhaps his body had been swept out to sea, and that's why we never found him. I think the whole family shared my theory, but we never spoke about it, and we never told mom what we thought. It would have broken her heart. In any case, the search went from cold to freezing, and after seven long years, my uncle was declared legally dead. This sad milestone broke my mother. She went on with her life, being there for her family, children, and grandchildren, but a big part of her died along with her brother, and she never really recovered from the tragedy. I think it surprised us all when we discovered that David had written a will, and that he'd left all of his possessions and assets to my sister and I, including his beloved model village. My sister had just had a newborn, and so had no time to deal with this mess, and I couldn't ask mother for help as it was still too raw for her, so I took on the task of dealing with my late uncle's estate. The plan was to sell up and split the money, there really wasn't any other practical option. David's cottage was in a bit of a state after all those years, but I knew some renovation work would fix it up nicely, and with the housing market the way it was, we could sell for a good price. Mossville was a different kettle of fish, however. There was little to no process of selling it as a going concern. The market for model villages in the modern world is almost non-existent, for the reasons previously explained. And besides, the site was a mess. My best bet was to sell the land off for development, 
but first I needed to get the site appraised and valued, with due consideration given to planning permission and other issues. I made my initial visit to get the lay of the land. I'll admit to feeling trepidation on the drive down to the Mossville site as all the old memories came flooding back. We'd had good times during our childhood, but I kept recalling how Uncle David had raged with us when we accidentally damaged the church roof and the terrible sadness my mom carried with her after his disappearance. Unfortunately, my mood only darkened when I reached the site. The glory days of Mossville were clearly long gone. The once immaculately maintained streets, houses, and figures were now an awful mess. Everything was smashed up to hell or worn down by years of exposure to the elements. The village was fenced off, but the vandals had gone in anyway, tagging the site with graffiti and adding to the destruction. I'll admit to having tears in my eyes as I surveyed the damage. It was tragic to see this once idyllic place reduced to such a terrible state, but there was something else too. I've never been much of a believer in the spiritual world, but something struck me as I walked through the ruined model village. I experienced a nearly crippling depression. A terrible sadness which went well beyond what I should be feeling. It was as if this once magical place had assumed a dark aura, one of tragedy and death which threatened to consume anyone who walked these grounds. I should have listened to my instincts, but of course, I didn't. Instead, I told myself that my emotions had gotten the better of me and I needed to pull myself together. I had a job to do, however unpleasant it may be and so I got to work with clearing the site. This is where my story takes a bizarre and dark twist. What I tend to do now is transcribe the contents of my late uncle's diary, which I discovered during my clearance work. Most of its content is irrelevant, sadly giving little insight into David's state of mind. That was until I got to the final few days before his disappearance. The diary entries answered some of my questions, but raised many more. This will become self-evident as my story progresses. You may also be wondering how the diary went undiscovered all those long years while the police and my mother were on the case. Well, that's a question that is hard to answer. And so all I can say is please listen on. So, let's begin with my Uncle David's entry for July 9th, 2001. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Today, the weather was quite good. It started off cloudy, but the sun came out in the afternoon. This makes a pleasant change after all the rain over the previous few days. Thank goodness, as I have much work to do. I spent the morning in my workshop, finishing off my new villagers whilst touching up the paint on some of my existing people. The police constable's uniform needed to be retouched, and I'm excited about introducing the new undertaker to Mossville. As always, I need to work with painstaking accuracy on my little people to get them just right. Attention to detail is everything in this line of work. In the afternoon, I took advantage of the sunshine to do some work in the village, polishing the dome of the town hall and replacing three of the trees in the manor house grounds. 
Much to my annoyance, I saw that that stray tomcat has invaded my village once again. I didn't see the little bastard, but found evidence of its intrusion, with scratch marks on the church wall and several villagers out of place, scattered down the street with a blatant disrespect. This will have to stop. I phoned the council to complain, asking that animal control capture the stray, but I doubt they'll do anything about it. I may need to take action myself. My sister called this evening. I didn't answer, but she left a message on the machine. This only added to my annoyance. I know she means well, but I wish she'd just leave me alone and let me get on with my work. Well, tomorrow is another day. July 10th, 2001. I am beyond furious. It has taken me all day to regain some level of composure so I can write down my experience and attempt to work through my anger. The day started like any other. I got up and traveled to Mossville to start work. What I discovered was an atrocity. Someone, or probably multiple persons, had broken in during the night and proceeded to wreak devastation in an act of pure barbaricism. The bulk of the damage was confined to the main street. Several of the villagers were broken beyond repair, the grocer, the milkman, and the postmistress. All smashed to pieces. I don't know how anyone can be so cruel. There was some superficial damage to several buildings, but the vandals had taken out their anger on the church, breaking the steeple in half, crushing the roof, and stomping the building into the ground. I will need to rebuild the whole church from scratch. I was so angry that tears were rolling down my cheeks and I had to control my breathing before considering my next move. Once I calmed down somewhat, I phoned the police to report this act of wanton destruction. Sadly, this only added to my anger. They said they would process my report and send a constable out in due process, but I could tell they weren't taking it seriously. No doubt the vandalism was carried out by local teenage hoodlums. Children today are little better than animals, semi-feral and without discipline from their parents or teachers. The police will do nothing to stop them, and so these hooligans run amok, destroying property and ruining people's lives. This country's really gone to the dogs. I spent the rest of the morning cleaning up the mess, but there was another sickening twist to this foul tale. I almost missed it at first, hidden away as it was at the rear of the wrecked church. When I saw it, my heart froze for a second, and I believe I suffered a moment of genuine terror. The figure was built to the same scale as my villagers, 1 to 72, meaning it was only an inch tall. I knew straight away that it wasn't one of mine. After recovering from my initial shock, I got down on my hands and knees to examine the miniature in closer detail. What I saw was a grim reaper, a sinister figure dressed in a dark robe down to his feet and with a hood covering his head. The figure had no face, but did carry a scythe almost as tall as he was, its blade made from an actual tiny razor. I found the figure repulsive and would never have such an ugly miniature in my village but this raised the disturbing question of who had left the figure and why. I began to doubt my initial theory in that moment, figuring this was too sophisticated a trick for teenage hoodlums. Perhaps this is the act of a rival model villager, jealous at my creation. I took the Grim Reaper figure back to my workshop to examine it more closely. I examined it under my magnifying glass, impressed by the precision its maker had used. This was clearly the work of a professional. There was something very disconcerting about the miniature, though. A creepy feeling I couldn't quite explain. But things only got weirder. 
When I picked up the figure, I found it was ice cold, like it was just out of the freezer. But as I held it in my hand, the figure suddenly and inexplicably heated up, and in a moment it became so hot that it burned my hand, forcing me to drop it on the floor. I'll admit to swearing in rage as I looked down at the tiny Grim Reaper lying on the wood floor of my workshop. I couldn't understand what had just happened. Was this some sort of new technology? I'll gladly admit to being a Luddite, so I suppose it's possible. I should have kept the figure as evidence, but in my anger, I acted in haste, using pliers to pick up the red-hot figure and drop it into the furnace, watching with the grim satisfaction as it burnt to ashes. It's bedtime now, but I'm still angry and confused, so I doubt I'll get much sleep tonight. In any case, I will return to Mossville first thing in the morning. I pray this ugly incident is a one-off and I can put it behind me. July 11th, 2001. The intruders returned during the night. It was naive for me to think they wouldn't. I'm angry, but also deeply unsettled. Let me try to explain what happened. I arrived at Mossville shortly after dawn and went to work on the church reconstruction. At first, it didn't seem like there was any additional damage, but then I noticed several of the villagers were missing. The pub landlord, the schoolmistress, the fireman, the nurse, and the mayor were all gone. I searched frantically for my little people, hoping against hope that I'd simply misplaced them. I couldn't find their bodies, but I did find the heads. Yes, yes, I can hardly believe I'm writing this, but that's what I found. Five tiny severed heads, all carefully impaled on the railings in front of the town hall, forming a sick and macabre display. I could hardly believe my eyes. I was horrified, disgusted, and also amazed. The amount of effort it must have taken to remove the heads from the one-inch models and mount them to railings only millimeters thick, it almost defied belief. I struggled to breathe as I surveyed the scene, but then I saw it. The Grim Reaper miniature. That hateful figure. It was just standing there in the middle of Main Street. It was as if it was mocking me. It couldn't possibly be the same model from the previous day. I'd watched it burn, for God's sake. I stared at the Reaper for a moment before realizing that whoever was doing this must have made several copies of the figurine to mess with my head. I felt paranoid in that moment, scanning the horizon as I imagined my tormentor was watching me from afar. I soon reassured myself, however. I felt sure the Vandal was too much of a coward to show his face during daylight. He would surely return under the cover of darkness, but next time, I'd be waiting for him. In a fit of rage, I stomped the Grim Reaper under my boot, crushing it into little pieces. Enough was enough. Tonight I will stand guard, right here, and catch the bastard in the act. He's going to regret ever messing with me. July 12th, 2001 I'm in hell. Is this real? I don't understand, and I'm so scared. I fell asleep at some point during the night, lying on the grass beside my precious village. It wasn't my intention to do so, but I was so tired. When I awoke, I instantly realized something wasn't right. It seems like a nightmare, but somehow it's real. The grass I'd slept upon was now as tall as I was. I stared at the blades in astonishment and then at the mud beneath my feet. In confusion, I staggered forwards, pushing my way through the tall grass and hoping in vain that there was some kind of logical explanation. 
I saw a dandelion twice my size and almost had a heart attack, but this was only the start of it. As I trudged through the mud, I saw the dirt in front of me move as if something huge emerged from beneath the ground. I stepped back, recoiling in horror as I watched a massive, slimy, snake-like beast burrow its way up from the surface and slither out from the hole it had created. It took me a moment to realize what I was seeing as its pink, segmented form wiggled out into the open. It was an earthworm, but grown to immense size, an impossible size, easily as long as I was high and with a body as thick as my thigh. I stood there, paralyzed in fear, as I watched the beast blindly slithering towards me. But a moment later, a huge shadow appeared above my head, a massive form which dwarfed both me and the worm. There was an almighty squawk, a high-pitched din that almost deafened me. A second later, and the huge winged beast dived down, reaching out with its mighty talons. I watched on in horror as the creature rapidly impaled the earthworm with its sharp talons before it secured it within a mighty beak. The winged beast squawked again as it flapped its vast wings and ascended back into the blue skies. I looked up as my unlikely savior flew away, and once again astonished to recognize the black, brown, and white feathers on the monster bird, which I recognized was nothing more than a common garden sparrow. I broke in that moment still not understanding but knowing I was in grave danger. I sprinted for so long, cutting my way through the tall blades of grass and the giant wildflowers. Eventually I reached the edge of the grassland and found myself walking on hard concrete. I stopped and looked ahead, and then I saw it, Mossville, my miniature village. Except it wasn't miniature anymore, the scale was one to one. The town hall towered above me, and the wrecked church stood in front of me. The villagers were equal to my own height. My tired brain struggled to comprehend the terrifying implications, and the answer was as obvious as it was impossible. Mossville hadn't magically grown to full size overnight, but instead, I had been shrunk. Inexplicably, I was now a mere inch tall potential prey to insects and small birds, and with nothing but the clothes on my back and the diary I carried with me, which has also been shrunken to a proportionally small size. What's more, I was trapped in my own creation, a resident of my miniature village and entirely cut off from the real world. I tried to control my panic as I slowly walked along Main Street that I had so carefully built and maintained over all these years. I was certainly frightened by this inexplicable development, but also exhilarated at seeing my beloved Mossville in a way I'd never thought possible in my wildest dreams. But my boyish fantasies didn't last, as soon I had a new threat to deal with. I heard a familiar sound, a foul hissing amplified one hundredfold. When I looked up, I saw the beast, a leviathan to me in my reduced form. It was a black tomcat the stray which had caused me trouble over the last few weeks, when I was a six-foot-tall man, but now this small cat was as big as a T-Rex in comparison to my puny size. It stood at the far end of the village, its hungry green eyes glaring at me like I was nothing more than a kitty treat. I gasped in horror as I saw the cat stand up tall, its ears pulled back and eyes widening before it charged. The monster stomped along the concrete main street, the ground shaking under its huge size and weight. I ran for my life, desperately seeking sanctuary as the predator rapidly closed the gap. 
I made it to the town hall just in the nick of time, sprinting in through the doorway and diving into cover. The cat reached the door a second later, but thankfully it was too big to get inside. It glared into the entryway with its predatory eyes, opening its maw to reveal huge and sharp fangs. And then it shoved its paw through the tiny doorway, reaching out with its deadly claws. I screamed, retreating back to the far wall and as far as possible from the clawing attack. Fortunately, I was just out of reach of the predator, and so remained relatively safe inside the structure. The cat continued its attempt to break in, but thankfully without success. I hoped it would give up and seek alternative prey, but instead, the beast lay down on the main street, glaring at the town hall as it patiently waited for me to come out. It's as if the cat has a personal vendetta against me and won't give up until I'm in its belly. I remain trapped inside the town hall as I write this, without food, water, or any prospect of rescue. I'm alone and scared, and I don't know how I'll get out of this in one piece. July 12th, 2001. Evening. I heard a high-pitched meow before the beast sped off at top speed, shaking the ground beneath its paws. I was relieved, but also concerned. What in the hell had scared the feline away? Was it another cat or dog, I feared? The cat left shortly after dusk. Actually, it didn't so much leave as it fled. I might be in even greater danger than before. But then again, perhaps the cat had been frightened off by a human being? Had my sister come to look for me? If so, maybe she could save me from this hellish predicament. I cowered in the town hall for several more hours before I felt brave enough to poke my head out of the door. To my relief, I saw it was all clear. The cat was nowhere in sight, but nor was anyone else. Feeling a bit bolder, I opted to explore the village under the dim light of the moon and stars. It was not a wise decision. As I cautiously walked down the main street, past the model shops and lampposts, I had the unsettling feeling that I was being watched. My throat was dry, as I hadn't drank anything in the best part of 24 hours, and so I proceeded to the stream, cupping water into my hands and slurping it up greedily. After a moment, I felt better, but then I raised my head and saw it. The Grim Reaper figurine, standing just behind the gate to the manor house, glaring down upon me from the hillside. This was its third appearance, except now it was no longer a tiny model I could crush underneath my foot. The Reaper was now as tall as I was. I felt sure that this thing, whatever it was, surely it was responsible for my grim predicament using some form of dark magic to reduce me to this tiny stature. I can't explain why, but in that moment, a cold terror pulsated through me as I believed I was in mortal danger. Turning on my heels, I fled for my life, sprinting back to the town hall and sealing myself inside. I'm still here, cold, afraid, and hungry. I won't dare to leave my sanctuary again before dawn. I can only hope and pray that my prospects improve. July 12th, 2001. I don't know what time. My god, hell has come to my door. My own creations have turned against me. I write frantically as I don't have much time. I slept for a short spell, waking some time in the early hours. When I went to the window, my heart froze as I witnessed my worst nightmare come to life. All my villagers were standing out there on the main street. The artisans, the school children, and all of the professions even the five previously taken, minus their heads. 
They all stood there with menacing intent, forming a mob and facing the town hall. Those who still had their heads looked different than before. The smiles on their faces now turned into mouths emitting silent screams, and their once friendly eyes now narrowed in anger. At their head was my nemesis, the dreaded Grim Reaper, his scythe in his hand as he pointed the sinister weapon in my direction. And then it started. The Reaper gave the order, lowering his scythe and pointing in my direction. It was the signal. To my shock and horror, the villagers all suddenly came to life, slowly marching forward in an awkward, almost mechanical fashion. I had no doubt that they meant to do me harm. I cower inside as I scribble this note, which will surely be my final words. They are banging on the doors and windows, trying to break in. There is no escape. I hope against hope that someone will find this journal and get word to my family, to my sister, nephew, and niece. I'm so sorry that I pushed you all away. I love you all. That was my uncle's last entry, and I don't mind telling you that his final words moved me to tears. You're probably wondering how I discovered my late uncle's diary. In many ways, it was by pure chance whilst I was clearing out the site. The journal was still in its reduced size, a micro-miniature book, less than a quarter of an inch in dimension. I could well have ended up throwing it out along with all the other tiny models, but as I held it in the palm of my hand, I had a feeling which made me think of my uncle. I had to acquire specialist equipment to view the tiny book and use a powerful microscope to read my uncle's words. His terrible end defied belief, and yet I knew in my heart it was true. I never told my mother about my discovery, fearing what it would do to her. She went to her grave without ever knowing the truth. There was no body to bury, and after reading the journal, I looked in the town hall and found a figure that I didn't recognize, but at the same time looked surprisingly familiar. I don't like to dwell on it, however, as it sickens me to imagine my uncle's final moments. As for Mossville, I had it completely demolished and sold the land. I've never returned to the location in all the years since. I can't help but feel that this bizarre tragedy would not have happened if David had kept in touch with his family. In the end, you could say that his obsession killed him. I don't know what you'll make of the story. I still don't fully understand it myself. All I know is that there are dark powers beyond our comprehension, and my uncle David sadly fell foul of them. So my final advice is to take care, because you can never know where an unhealthy obsession will lead you. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object class Euclid Keter Safe Special Containment Procedures 
spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. <laughs> the only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing. Do you remember your name? Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.